Hello, hello, here we go. Welcome to this, the Red Bulletin Podcast. I'm your host, Andreas Georges. We're talking to top performers in the worlds of art, culture, uh, adventure, sports. Um, today's guest is actually from the art world. He is Robert Williams. He is an artist of renown and the founder of Juxtapose Magazine, uh, the West Coast answer to uh, the hegemony of uh, East Coast art institutions and art publishing. Uh, it's a very successful magazine, probably the most successful art magazine in America today. Uh, I encourage you to pick it up, actually. There's always some really good stuff in there. Um, Robert Williams, though, can provide perspective uh, dating back all the way to the 60s. He's in his early 70s now, uh, which means he pulls absolutely no punches. Uh, he pulled his, He started his career at a time when nobody really wanted what he was producing, uh, which was provocative, uh, almost pornographic illustrations steeped in kind of the rockabilly and the hot rod scene at the time, the real renegades, this is like the 50s, 60s, California. And it wasn't just that that the prevailing art movement at the time was abstract expressionism. Now, abstract expressionism, you need to imagine uh, the kind of art that hangs in bank lobbies. Uh, it wasn't just that uh, that was the prevailing art movement. It was more so the sense that... Um, Williams and his contemporaries were producing art that was considered very subversive and contrary to the prevailing uh, attitude and opinion in America at a time. This is 1960s America, still very conservative, very, very much against the anti-Vietnam War protests. And so the art that Williams and his contemporary produced uh, when it was sold, those who sold it often risked imprisonment for selling it. Um, but Williams was a, was undeterred. Uh, he's the son of a southern uh, conservative father and a northern liberal mother. Imagine that in today's America. Um, he wouldn't quit. Uh, he kept producing his art. He had a, a fierce self-confidence in himself, and we get into that, and a belief in his ability uh, that his art would find an audience. And with time, it did. Williams is now considered the author of the lowbrow or feral art movement that inspired the punk scene, it inspired rock and roll posters and album covers. There is a local band by the name of uh, Guns N' Roses that used his work on their first album, Appetite for Destruction. So it was with great pleasure that we sat down with him uh, for about an hour or so. Uh, he gave us some real perspective on America in the 60s and America today. I had some... Uh, thoughts and warnings uh, about uh, about complacency. Um, he also got into uh, why he had that self-belief. And I should also say that Robert Williams and Juxtapose Magazine are featured in an episode of the Red Bull TV series Ripple Effect, which is on Red Bull TV now. Definitely worth checking out. All right, uh, let's uh, start the show. Uh, just starting off with Alabama, uh, doesn't tell the story. <clears throat> I have a, a mother from Indiana that's a liberal, and I had a father from the Deep South that was fairly conservative. Okay? So I was raised in a situation where I, any subject that come up, I had a view of both directions. <clears throat> and they were very convincing from both my parents politics and how you conduct yourself socially and whatnot. <clears throat> so my parents were married and divorced four times. Okay? And the reason for that is, you know, people go, four times? Oh, my goodness. Well, <clears throat> in the 40s, you didn't just shack up. If you're a good Christian, you just didn't shack up, you know. That was living in sin, and that turned into a common-law marriage, and it <clears throat> you couldn't really raise your head in public. So my parents went through this marriage and divorce a number of times. So they got remarried again. That's right. Well, that's a credit to – I mean, that's a little bit of optimism in there then too, isn't it? Well, my father uh, – I don't want to use the word philanderer, but he spread himself pretty thin. Okay. <laughs> And he, he, on my father's side, there was quite a bit of money. <clears throat> he, um, in the 30s, was an executive for Coca-Cola Company. And in college, he took ROTC, so when World War II broke out, he was an officer, say, and worked his way up to major, 
say, and he was very instrumental um, in the glider uh, services. Okay. Are right. you familiar with the glider services in World War II? Uh, I'm as, familiar as, with as well as, as well as paratroopers, they had gliders that had, had troops. Big troop transport gliders. Really? Yes. Just gliders, so so not engine driven. Oh then. no, no, they're, they're, they'd be pulled by a C forty seven transport to, to combat zone and huh. cut free. This okay. was this was common among the English and the Germans and the Americans and probably the French to have these gliders. See, that, that way they can keep a lot of troops together at one time instead of parachutes are all over. Right. <clears throat> but it proved. A very dangerous uh, tragedy because there's so many deaths landing gliders. Say. So my father was in charge of teaching uh, glider pilots. Say. <clears throat> so um, anyway, uh, my father put me into a military school. I you know, thought that would do me some good. <clears throat> and... I'm a person of a recalcitrant personality. You know what recal- recalcitrant means? Recalcitrant is a military term that means you, you, you can't be broken or uh, you can't be f- uh, forced to conform. Right. I was a recalcitrant personality. Even at, at, at what age yeah, is that? Yeah. At what age can they identify something like that? Well, they just thought I'd need a good ass whipping. <laughs> and, uh, right. That'd break that, you right. know. And then right. that's consequently what I got on a number of occasions is – I had this uh, uh, masquerant personality, masquerant personality that I was just a fuck up, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, uh, I was born prematurely and uh, had lung problems and whatnot. And I just didn't adjust well to a, a very high testosterone world, you know. <clears throat> but nonetheless, I was subjected to it. And so went back and forth with my mom, back from Albuquerque to Alabama, back and forth and back and forth. And finally, it came to an end in 1956, and I ended up back in Albuquerque. Now, when I was in Alabama in the early 50s, my dad opened a drive-in restaurant, and it was called the Parkmore. Uh, it uh, was touted as the world's largest drive-in restaurant, and it could have easily been. It serviced 100 cars at one time. It, was, it took up an acre. And it uh, had two movie screens and its own radio station, and uh, a lot of celebrities would appear there at this restaurant. So, you know, my father was very, very good friends with Hank Williams. I knew Hank Williams wow. personally. Okay, <laughs> country legend. <clears throat> yeah. So I uh, had the silver spoon in my mouth in Alabama, but when our parents finally divorced, I ended up on the streets of Albuquerque, which was a, a very, very rough. Uh, town, a frontier town. Okay. <clears throat> well, well, well uh, I'm, I was <clears throat> raised on the street to fight, and I was continually in fights in Albuquerque, and uh, I really wasn't adjusting very well. <clears throat> and movies like Rebel Without a Cause and Blackboard Jungle had enormous effect on me, you know. I, I could relate to the youth situations in there. <clears throat> so i become something of, uh, I'd hate to refer to it, but it's something of a hoodlum, you know, a little hoodlum. So <clears throat> um, I started running around with a lot of really bad people. And I, <clears throat> in later years, you know, I, I really hated crime. I hated crime and I hated fighting, but I was in that world because the other world <clears throat> was the conformist, bourgeois world that I didn't like, that uh, was uh, it had no life to it. It had no vitality. It had no zeitgeist, you know, and I loved energy and whatnot. So I'd get in the wrong goddamn crowd. So, did you did you connect with those people in that crowd? Is that it? Or well, was it- I, I connected with their, with their um, esprit de corps. Right. But I, their sense of togetherness. I, their- it didn't take long to realize that they weren't real bright. Right, say, you know, robbing filling stations and whatnot, and beating people up. It just, you know, it, uh, it, it didn't work well with me. And then in later years, I realized I actually wasn't a criminal. I was a bohemian. You know, when I got older and I got around more intelligent people that went to college and stuff, and then I realized, well, the reason I don't fit is not because I'm a. a, a, a 
an outcast criminal. It's just the fact that uh, you just um, haven't found your crowd. That uh, I had a, a far greater appreciation for abstract thinking. You know, and the ninety percent of the American public was extremely linear. See, what kind of books were you reading at that point? What kind of what well, kind of art were you consuming? Well, let me let, let me carry on my own tale here, and we'll come back to that. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, how old are you? I'm uh, thirty nine. Thirty nine. <clears throat> okay. Now, if you were to live in the United States in say nineteen fifty five. And you, there's in the United States of 1963, there would be no cultural difference, almost no cultural difference between 1955 and 1963. There was a little bit of beatnik culture that was happening on college campuses, say. But morally, the, the, there was a right wing control of the country that uh, believed in uh, the. Uh, uh, Toe the line and Jesus Christ and the, the white man's law and whatnot. And <clears throat> but in 1967, with the Vietnam War, it was <clears throat> more like 1975. Say, because of the Vietnam War, you had this enormous cultural situation happen. Hey, now <clears throat> when I remember in the 50s hanging out at beatnik coffee houses and stuff, I started seeing the drug culture, see? And then I worked for the carnival for a while, and then I really got kind of immersed into the drug culture. And I, I watched the drug culture grow, but it didn't ignite until the Vietnam War. Then it went apeshit. Then America changed between 1963 and 1967. You had a, a tremendous change. <clears throat> you had another change happen, <clears throat> In 1967, if my figures are right, my memory serves me right, in 1967, for the first time in the history of Homo sapiens, there was more young people than old people. History of the mankind. There's more young people. So this changed culture enormously. In other words, all marketing shifted to the youth market, say. So the power of the use started to really exercise itself, and that's what was the big problem of that Vietnam War was that <clears throat> to me, the Vietnam War was like being forced into the army. I, I dodged the draft. It forced me into the army to go arrest another country when my ass is arrested daily on the streets of Albuquerque, say. So I, <clears throat> I wasn't real sympathetic for the Vietnam War. Now, I wasn't a leftist. I was liberal, but not a leftist. You know, I could, you know, if, if they leave my ass out, then they can just have all the goddamn wars they want because they seem to want to do that anyway. See, that was kind of like my philosophy on it. <clears throat> but, <clears throat> but then I realized <clears throat> my life was going down the drain in Albuquerque, and I was going to end up in real serious trouble. So <clears throat> I took a little bit of money that I inherited uh, and moved to. Los Angeles in 1963. You were about, what, 20? I was you were 20 years old. 20 years old. 20 years old. You know, I've been seriously involved in hot rods. Uh, Probably since the Park View, right? Probably yeah, the Parkmore, yeah. The Parkmore, Yeah, my me. dad had a fleet of stock cars back in the early 50s. He right. uh, had drivers, drove stock cars down in the south. And so I was familiar with early hot rod Fords, you know, and they were an addiction to me. So I... Uh, Spent a lot of time with hot rodders in Albuquerque, and my life was going down the drain. And my fiance left me, and you know, and then I got a little bit of money, and I thought, well, I, you know, I, I better straighten up and become like an artist because I'd <clears throat> I'd done all the hard work. You know, I've been a truck driver and a forklift operator, a short order cook, ditch digger, soda jerk. I've done it all, you know, and it was all shit work, and it didn't look like I was gonna. You know, my future didn't look good with the arts. I had a real propensity for drawing, a real propensity. As you mentioned earlier, when I was very young, my parents would sit me down on a big piece of butcher paper and crayons, and at three or four, two or three, I'd just start laying out laying out art, you know. So in elementary school, they'd have all the kids work on a mural at the end of the hall, and then I'd look at the mural, it looked so fucked up, and I'd go up and I'd have to put... <laughs> I'd have to put composition into you know I didn't do a thing of myself I'd have to take their bullshit and make composition out of it you right. know improve upon it <laughs> yeah I'd have to put landscapes and make it all work right. <laughs> see I, I had like this uh, 
ability that, uh, you know. You were a critic, but a critic with ability. Okay. Then another thing was happening besides this. I started getting into comic books really early because they were visual, say. And then I noticed about 1950, 51, that there was like some of the comic books were really exceptional artwork with exceptional stories. And then, uh, you know, I was kind of always drawn to the lurid, you know, the sensational, you know. And um, I don't think there was a time in my life I didn't appreciate girls. I think as soon as I could breathe, I appreciate females, you know. And then I, I, I tended to the more licentious stuff, you know. So, <clears throat> Which was probably hard to get your hands on. Oh, yeah. The only, the only pornography you could find in the 40s was either out-and-out dirty photographs under the table or uh, eight-page Bibles. Do you know what an eight-page Bible is? No. Well, from the me. 20s to the 40s, <clears throat> they made these illegal little comic books with eight pages, and they were called an eight-page Bible or, or a Tijuana Bible. And they were, either, they were either mimeographs or they were done by rubber stamps. And they were of cartoon characters, and they were so bitching. You know, you'd see Popeye, you know, drilling Going something, drilling olive oil, and you know, and it's just the greatest things in the world. You know, and that's the that was the first pornography I saw was a eight page Bibles. <clears throat> so anyway, um, so you were attracted. I mean, that was, yeah, that was yeah. you were attracted to, to that to girls. I, I, I wanted to ask about whether it was a viable career path in artist. Okay. You said Wait, you. This is all going to fall in place. This question is all going to fall in place. <laughs> okay, okay. I but just got to slow it down. I'm, yeah, I'm right. building your foundation I, I know, here. I know. I'm building I'm, your foundation. You know what? I'm okay. done. You no, take no, it no, over. no, no. So um, anyway, uh, there was a set of comic books that were exceptionally good, and they were called entertainment comics, EC comics. And they had the monsters and the horror and the war comics and uh, all kind of cowboys and the, just all kind of the greatest set was EC Comics. And I, I mean, it just enthralled me, just in remarkable draftsmanship. And later when I got to learn to read, oh, they were even better. It just, just knocked me out. And then they, I remember one issue they said, well, we're coming up with another comic called Mad Comics, which later went to Mad Magazine. Okay, okay, listen to this. <clears throat> So all of a sudden, this guy, uh, uh, there, there's this famous doctor, um, who, uh, a, phys, uh, a psychiatrist. He come out with a book called Seduction of the Innocents. And he said that uh, comic books are creating juvenile delinquency. <clears throat> so um, there's a Senate investigation, a key for Senate investigation in Washington. <clears throat> and... They just outlaw all the good comics. Just outlaw all the good comics. So I'm looking at the newsstand, and all there is is Disney and Happy Animals and real, you know, trite, real juvenile uh, stuff. <clears throat> so um, anyway, uh, you know, I, I wasn't like in a, a peer group full of people. I was by myself just looking at the comics. But later I learned that it affected a lot of other people too. So it just, you know, that's it for comics for me. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, years go by, and here, here I'm, I'm uh, going to move to California to be an artist, and I've got all these influences. Girly magazines, comics, movie posters, you know, uh, pulp magazines, all this stuff is my influence, my zeitgeist, my emotional demand to express myself. And I moved to California and uh, take art classes, and I realized, man, I was born at the wrong time, right in the middle of abstract expressionism. Are you familiar with abstract expressionism? It's it's pretty abstract. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> to make abstract expressionism work, um, two critics in New York uh, made the statement that anyone that depends on three-dimensional representation doesn't have the mental strength and imagination to appreciate true beauty as abstract expressionism. really interesting, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm thrusted into an art school that teaches nothing but abstract expressionism and that drawing and skill like that is for people with a limited imagination. You know, you should be an illustrator. 
You understand what I'm saying? Was that so, a bad all, word? All, all, huh? Was that a bad word, being an illustrator? Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. It was derogatory. It meant, well, you know, you're, you're more cut out for uh, commercial application than you are for sensitive, caring expression that we teach in our schools. Now, <clears throat> l- l- let me uh, say this right now. Uh, <clears throat> I, I had an appreciation for abstract expressionism, say, and there is, there is no bad art. Uh, we function in an objective world, and art is subjective. We have to pay our bills and worry about the children and the mortgage and our health. That's an objective world. Art's a subjective world, see. Now, people that sell art want you to think that art's objective and it's worth a lot of money, see. But in reality, it's just like the the conceptual artist that had a a crucifix and a a jar of urine, that's just as valid as the Sistine Chapel, say, because it's subjective, say. But that that doesn't wash well with uh, uh, big galleries that are trying to pretty much um, uh, encourage a belief system. Now, I'm not against it. I'm part of the big gallery system myself. So anyway... I find myself wanting to draw, and I'm at the Los Angeles City College. Everybody's abstract expressionist. <clears throat> well, I try it and try it, and, and I, I realize that, uh, God, we got people here that uh, have absolutely no sense of graphics other than just mirroring paint, and that in a semester they can become an accomplished abstract expressionist. So <clears throat> there's hundreds of thousands of artists across the United States that are all abstract expressionists. All over the United States and Europe, you can't be anything but an abstract expressionist. Then pop art came in. Now, abstract expressionism uh, was the great uh, democratizer. It made everybody an artist. See? So that was wonderful. And it came in, abstract expressionism came in with progressive jazz and beatniks and whatnot, you know. And, and to this day, the, the, the most beautiful decorations in a bank lobby or a big hotel or something is abstract expression. You can't beat it for decoration. So then come pop art. And I thought, well, <clears throat> pop art's a. Uh, that's a return to realism. Well, years later, I realized, well, pop art uh, hates imagination too because it only thing in pop art is appropriating things around you. Okay? Brilla pad boxes and pictures of Elvis and Marilyn and stuff like that. See? Right. So that was very limited in imagination too. Now, when I was at Los Angeles City College, the, the college newspaper needed an editorial cartoonist and they went to the art department and 500, 600 students, nobody could draw. <laughs> so I said, I'll do the, I'll do the editorial cartoons. Yeah. So in, in two years, I won an award, national award, come uh, second against the whole country for editorial cartooning for school colleges. Okay? That, must, that must have felt good. It did. Like, like it in, did. A, in a room full or in a yeah, 600 a, school full of people who yeah. were trying to tell you that your art wasn't yeah. the right way forward. And I'm trying to figure out, well, what's wrong with these guys? Don't they want to get stuff in print? Right. You know? Get right. something in print's bitching, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, I uh, went out into the world. I married this wonderful girl named Suzanne, was also an artist, a very talented and skillful artist. So uh, I go out into the work pool and look for jobs. I found a job as an art director for Black Belt Magazine, a karate magazine. <clears throat> and that, this was during my psychedelic period. I was taking a lot of psychedelic drugs. And that, that, that worked for about six months, and then they fired me. And then I got another job with Warehouser Corporation, a real right-wing uh, deforestation company that makes boxes, Warehouser Corporation. It was a container designer. Okay. And I had to wear a tie and everything. I was like a junior executive container designer. And that, my psychedelic life was uh, filtering over into my right-wing uh, job. And so after about six months, and they fired me, see. Hmm. So, in desperation, you know, I just things are just looking fucking peaked, man. I just look young, man. This thing's just looking. Were you early twenties at this point? Yeah, I was in my early twenties. So when I was in Albuquerque, I gave up hot rods. You know, just 
that hot rods are driving me down a hole. I lost my beautiful fiance. You know, I just the last thing I was anything to hot rods. Well, anyway, I went down to an unemployment agency and I says, uh, "You got anything for me?" He says, and "They never have anything for you because everybody's a fucking artist." He says, "No, no. Well, well, we do have one thing here, but nobody will take it because the working conditions are." They're dirty and whatnot. I said, what is that? Well, we're looking for an art director for this custom car builder, Ed Big Daddy Roth. I said, give me the phone. So I call Roth up. He says, well, let's bring your portfolio. And you knew that you knew this guy. I met him before at a car show years ago. But you, you I knew know, exactly you knew who he was. Work, oh, yeah, sure, mm-hmm. sure. Okay. And what kind of what kind of a reputation did he have at that time? As a wild beatnik car builder, a wild beatnik car builder. Sounds right up your alley. Couldn't have been better. <laughs> but were I'm you, not religious, but it was like divine providence. <laughs> were you worried about drifting down that path potentially? Well, again? I had no choice. Right. And I was an art director, you know, so I showed him my portfolio. He looked at my portfolio. And he says, well, you know, if I knew you were alive, I'd have hunted you up, see? So all of a sudden, I'm making a lot of money, a lot of money, and I can dress any way I want. All I have to do is meet deadlines. saying, come and go when I want. you got to meet deadlines. So that uh, that was just uh, I couldn't have asked for better. What know? about his scene? What about the well, folks? Did that feel home to you? Did that feel comfortable? It was more than comfortable. It was more than comfortable. There was a lot of women and drugs and hot rods, and it was colorful. And there was a lot of movie stars and rock stars hanging out down there. And every minute was a remarkable situation down at Raw Studios. Were, were there some criminal they, they, uh, investigations? Well, as well, the like Hell's that? Angels were down there all the time, Yikes. and there, there was a three-day shootout with the Hell's Angels down there, and it was it was just a a scene and a half. You know, I I, I could write a book just on what happened down there. See, and it was. <clears throat> And I, it just pumped me up. It's just a, I was in an underground world, and you know, I, was, I've, I run into other artists. I run into the psychedelic poster artists from San Francisco because one of them was Stanley Mouse. It used to be a competitor of Ross, so all of a sudden I found my way into the Bohemian world into San Francisco. See through there. Roth got involved with he was one of the very first people to promote chopper motorcycles. <clears throat> And this was an outlaw world. And he got away from cars and got in with chopper motorcycles, and this caused his car business to to decline. He started a magazine called Chopper Magazine. It was the first motorcycle magazine with choppers in it. So while I was still working for Ross, I run into uh, – I was oil painting this whole time. This whole time at night, at, at I'd night. go home and oil paint. How long would you paint for? Well, I, uh, three or four hours every night, I'd get home. At uh, the end of the working day, the end too. of the work day. And this was after a long commute from um, from uh, Maywood back to Hollywood. Could, can you just lose yourself then in, when you're painting? Well, or is there a- I thought, well, I was young, and I thought— well, I can paint myself out of a hole here. If I'm, what I'm doing is eventually going to catch on. You know, it you, was just you, blind hope. Blind you hope. Be, you believe that, though. You believed in that. Well, yeah, I did. I believed that my ability somewhere along the line was going to pay off. I know. I, I, I was, and, and, and the other side of my mind, kid, you're full of shit. But I do. My hope in life was to do remarkable, imaginative, tight oil paintings, and somewhere along the line, these things are going to pay off. Well. <clears throat> While I was working for Ross there in uh, 68, 69, I met some people in San Francisco in a a publishing house, seeing if they would do my – make prints of my paintings. And then I found Zap Comics. There's a fellow named Robert Crumb. Explain to us who Robert Crumb is. He's he's quite the legend. Robert Crumb was an underground cartoonist that originally worked for American Greetings Cards, and he was like a, his imagination was like a gorilla in a birdcage. It just, he, he moved to San Francisco and started doing outlaw underground comics uh, in cahoots with the psychedelic poster artist. And later the psychedelic poster artist, most of them got in with Zap Comics, and then consequently I got in Zap Comics. So when I got, in, when I got into Zap Comics in 69, I was the only underground cartoonist in Los Angeles, and maybe uh, there was only 10 in the United States, say. But in, in 
two or three years, there were thousands running around cartoonists. They caught on. That Zap just caught on immediately. Was it Zap that birthday, or was it the culture, the counterculture that that had gotten <clears throat> bigger and more influential in that the, time? The young people were starving for this. They were starving for this. You live in a complacent fucking time now. You and your peer group is relatively complacent. See. The best thing that could happen for you is uh, Trump to become president and lower the boom. Then you'd have a sense of uh, you, you have to revolt, you know. You, right. you have to bring yourself up and stand up for some liberties. By the way, I'm, I'm complacently acknowledging that you're right <laughs> by <laughs> well, nodding. So. We, can, we can gnaw that bone some other time. <clears throat> but uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, Zap was any goddamn program you could think of. And I mean, it was sex and violence and abstraction and nonsense. And it just sold like crazy. And it went all over the United States and Europe. And consequently, over a period of about two or three years, over 400 news dealers went to jail selling Zap comics. So that's a, I always have to bear that responsibility that what I was doing is put some people in jail. Well, anyway... Um, Sorry, I, went to sorry, went to jail for what? For new, it was for, pon, pon, pornography. It was leftist pornography. So selling leftist pornography. And there was a time in the Vietnam War, about sixty-seven or sixty-eight, that the the the, 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 the country hated these demonstrations and the, the resistance to the war, right. okay. and and they were th- they were seriously thinking if the country swung more to the right, they were going to open up these concentration camps, these internment camps, and start throwing in goofballs and liberals in those concentration camps. This is a fact. So I had – not only was I working for Roth who was involved – who had a bad thing with the FBI because of the Hells Angels, but I was involved in being a draft dodger and I was all involved being um, with Zap Comics. See? So I realized you know, I had the sword of Damocles hanging over my head. You know, it wasn't was – Where was your father at this point? My father was in Alabama. Uh, he had remarried. Uh, he had uh, give up on the r- restaurant business, and he was trying different. Uh, was was he aware of your your no. life? Out and- well, no, because he. I don't think he would. You know, I kept him away from that. You right. know, that he couldn't have dealt with what I was doing. You know, he's a good Christian man, and. You know, I'm doing these. So there was never any blowout arguments about this kind of thing because you didn't no, even no, bring it up. No, no, my him. my mother was more liberal, but she had a hard time with it too. Sure, you know, it's yeah. just uh, the the gratuitous nonsense in these comic books was just remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, remember the, the the government shut down EC comics in the fifties? Well, this is as you think ECs were bad. Fuck you, ain't see nothing. Wait, you see these zap comics, these underground comics, and this was a revenge. See, these things were taken off like lightning. Some of those Zap comics sold over a million an issue. You know, they got around. They, I will go so far as to say Zap comics, in a great extent, affected American culture. You know, your sense of humor that you have today has, has got roots back in the goddamn dirty comic books. In turn, goes back to those eight-page Bibles see? and EC comics. See? This turned the, the the effect on these comics showed up in television, comedians, and movies, and you know, it just it was a change. Like Andy Kaufman, yes, those guys, like absolutely, absurdist. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. No response to no responsibility to fucking logic, like surrealism. You know, uh, Steve Martin, the comic started out mm-hmm. that way. Yes, he used absolutely. to wait for he used to build them up to a punchline that never came. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we would Zap Comics would have panel to panel to panel, and sometimes they didn't tell stories. It just was just one working off the other. Was there a gratification for you that that you know all the stuff you've been working on in secret and just just churning away just because you believed well, in it? Well, had... I'd go up to San Francisco and I'd be a hero. There See? you go. I mean, the bitches were looking. The bitches <laughs> was looking. You know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think you can be any more subtle than that. So, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, but but at the same time, I got the sword of Damocles hanging over my head. You know, our fannies might end up in an internment camp, you know. But the country swung to the left and got out of the Vietnam War, and then underground comics petered out. See? Well, meanwhile, I'm still painting away, still painting away. See? Well, when Roth went out of business, a millionaire walked in there and bought – all his cars and bought all the original artwork from Ross Studios because he saw this is going to be something in the future. And then he latched on to me and saw what I was doing and he bought all my oil paintings. So there was a period there that I had a lot of money. 
Now, uh, uh, galleries wouldn't take my work. Art magazines wouldn't take my work. I couldn't show anywhere. The stuff was just too off the wall. But this millionaire came in there, and by God, he set me up on Easy Street for 10 years, you know, and that's just unbelievable. The, the only peer group I had was the underground cartoonist, and every one of them had a fine arts education. Every one of them said they couldn't do their tight work because of abstract expressionism. <laughs> okay, so anyway, I, I needed a peer group. And then along come the punk rock movement, you know. And I'm 20 years too old for the punk rock movement, but I really like what they were doing in the arts. And, and um, ironically, a lot of the people in punk rock had art backgrounds. So uh, in New York, they had clubs. And then after the clubs, they'd have an after-hour club that uh, would show artwork and stuff like that. And then that moved to Los Angeles. So you had clubs... You had art galleries after the clubs closed that sold used the art show as a front to sell liquor without a license. See, there's about five of them in L.A. back in the late '70s, early '80s. See, so <clears throat> I got involved in that. I figured, well, if I kind of knock my style back a little bit and do it real quick, and and I can certainly handle the gratuitous sex and violence, I can light these fucking paintings up. You know these. Young people think they can do wild punk rock shit, you know. They got another thing coming. They got another thing coming, you know, because uh, I, I know how to work on people's anxieties, you know. Right. I mean, uh, I, I produce enough energy in an oil painting that uh, you, you could run a six-volt battery, charge a six-volt battery. So I got in with these guys and started showing with them and— I did a series of paintings called Zombie Mystery Paintings. It was just the most ridiculous fucking things of sex and violence and energy and color and contrast, you know. I, just, I took a great deal of pride in how ridiculous these things really were because my audience was young people on drugs and drunk at night, you know, and they're looking at them, blowing their minds. And it was just such a wonderful experience that that was my crowd that I was appealing to, you know. <clears throat> Because, I mean, I wasn't accepted in the art world anyway. I mean, making these people happy. Yeah, so, but that must have felt great. It did. Like, these were, this it was did. your tribe, and the tribe loved you. you That's know, You right. weren't trying to live That's up to right. a certain— But was it—it it wasn't made to despite—it wasn't made to spite the art world, was it? It was just—it was coming well, from within well, you. Forget, or, just forget the art world. That's, they're out of the—like, I'm out of their picture. They're out of my picture, see? <clears throat> Then these rock bands uh, and garage bands would license these pieces of work for covers, see. And, God, I was licensing a lot of them. I didn't charge them much. Then this one band come, and they started needling me, wanting this one piece of artwork. I says, you know, that's that's a rough piece of artwork, you know. Why don't you come over to my house, and I'll let you go through my slides. And you pick something, isn't that, that brutal? Isn't that brutal? This was when? This is the early 80s? This, this was late it? 80s. Late 80s. And the band picked this piece of artwork called Appetite for Destruction, see? And this was uh, Guns N' Roses before they were heard of, see? Well, wow. that went into like, what, wow. 34 million albums, 40 million albums, you know? And then the, the authorities clamped down on it, and it was outlawed a bunch of places. And then I had to be on television, had to be on MTV defending it, and, and then I got real popular doing that, see? MTV when it was relevant, we should yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, I graduated from these these funky uh, punk rock galleries into better galleries and better galleries and better galleries. My prices went up and up and up. And I went to New York and uh, showed in punk rock galleries there and then better galleries. And uh, to make a long story short, I ended up one of the top galleries in the world is Tony Shafrazi Gallery. Hey, Tony Shafrazi uh, had um, um, Basquiat and Kenny Scharf and Keith Haring and some of the top graffiti artists, you know, and then he took yeah. me, you know, and uh, I did well there. I was with him for 27 years. Hey. When did he take you first? 92. 92. Okay, yeah. so this is after Basquiat and yeah. Scharf is still yeah. around. But yeah. 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 So anyway... <clears throat> To, to, to get back to the art world now, um, I kept thinking, well, you know, uh, what, what's the next step? And what happened was art went from abstract expressionism to conceptualism. Now, in conceptualism, you didn't have to fucking do art. You could just predicate it. 
you know, they following the old Dada, Dadaist philosophy of Marcel Duchamp, the day will come when you can just point to something and designate it as art. Well, that's really the basis of what uh, conceptualism was, that you you uh, cut a fart and write a treatise on it, you right. know. And, right. and I'm not against that. Right. I'm not against that. But uh, that didn't leave much room for me in the fine arts world. See, I'm still the... The illustrator, the bogus illustrator, say. But with Tony, Tony supported me and sold a lot of artwork for me, and uh, uh, here I am before you. But I feel that I want to get to this idea of subjective and objective. How much, to, to what degree were you creating your work for an audience? To what degree were you creating your work just because of compulsion, because you had to create it? When I was doing the underground comics, see, this was before comic book conventions, so you really didn't know who you were doing the work for. So when I was doing underground comics, I had in my mind, well, there's actually really intellectual people with uh, with visual investigative skills that will find this, like I found EC Comics. Well, then when the comic book conventions come, and I realized what the real audience was, it was like a bunch of nincompoops. See? And I'm, oh, my God, you know. This it is might my, be these giant. are my people. Yeah. It might be giant, but the, that, intellectual, that intellectual group is not there that I was looking for, maybe to a small extent, you know. And they were just the kind of people that got carried along in the trend. But there were, of course, very intelligent people that got into those comics. So when I got into painting, you know, and I said, man, I don't know who the fuck I'm painting here for. You know, I'm painting for myself. And let's just see what, you know, I'm, I'm not placating a big audience, you know, with the cute characters and the big-eyed children and this and that, you know. I'm just uh, shooting off the hip here with a pure imagination, you know. It's just like a, a wild beast in the forest, you know. I'm like a, what do you call it, a feral child, a feral artist, you know. I'm right. just kind of grab myself up by my own collar and jerk myself up into position. Yeah, why you do know? you prefer that? Because, uh, you know, it was your your movement or your style was considered uh, – was. <clears throat> dubbed lowbrow at well, one point. Well, lowbrow come what, from my first book. Right. See, it come from my first book that was put together in 79 and then started hitting the stands in the early 80s. And then later the art world come up with a thing in New York called the highbrow lowbrow show. But my book had already been established, see. But critics now say, well, I got that from that highbrow lowbrow. But it didn't. It was way before. And I'm <clears throat> my first book... My first book, I went to uh, Gilbert Shelton that did the Furry Freak Brothers, had a publishing company called Rip Off Press. And he said, we want to do a book of your paintings. I love that. And he says, but the only way we can sell them, the books, is through the underground network, the grapevine that sells underground stuff to college bookstores and stuff like that. We have no real distributors. So half the book has got to be underground comics and the other half's got to be paintings. So the book was called Lowbrow Art, say. So the book did extremely well, extremely well. So then I got another publisher to do the second book, Zombie Mystery Paintings. It was nothing but paintings, and it did well. Then I did book after book, and I've got 10 books out now. So I'm working on another two now, see. So that, that – but when I – when Lowbrow Art Book came out, uh, underground people just didn't have art books. The only art books was coffee table books for housewives on Matisse and – you know, was this before Modigliani and was stuff. this was this Toshin before Toshin? Oh, this or? way before Toshin, way right, before him. Right, yeah. right. So anyway, so how'd you make a book? I well, mean, I've, just, I've just got publishers that'll do it now. You know, right, right. You know? But back then, was it was an well, ordeal, or uh, was the, it was it like a plan? You're like, I need a book out well, to reach no, this. Well, they when one book would sell, the other publishers would see that it would sell because they distribute it too, and then they realize, well, this is uh, feasible. Right. You know, we, we can make money on this. This is feasible. Right. So I'm the first guy to have this kind of art book of yeah. this outlaw crap, see? Yeah. So that uh, other artists can jump on the bandwagon. See, I'm, yeah. I'm the guy that laid on the bob wire while they all crossed over, see? Right. Well, anyway, <clears throat> while we're do, well, with all these punk rockers and doing these shows, you know, I figure, well, you know, we need a, we need a, a, Magazine, it's like uh, the old surrealist, uh, uh, surrealist revolution in Minotaur that was like uh, manifestos. You know, we need a magazine because this people are eating this stuff up. It was the stuff was being printed in tattoo magazines and biker magazines and all these magazines with articles on us, and people are going nuts over it. So it's feasible to have a have a magazine of our own. 
So I had done some covers that were paintings that were used on the cover of Thrasher magazine, the skateboard magazine. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Which must have felt, by the way, like a natural extension of the hot rod scene a Absolutely. bit to you, right? Absolutely. Kind of miscreant <clears throat> use, yeah. at least that was the reputation. Well, uh, the New York art scene was one thing, and it was the capital of the art world. <clears throat> but something was happening the last 30 or 40 years on the West Coast, and it was a starting to form really, really talented people that had no chance of integrating with New York. You had art from the hot rod scene, the biker scene, the surf scene, the underground comics, the psychedelic posters, and on and on and on of different kinds of art. It was just exclusively, primarily the West Coast. And this was, to me, seemed like this was all going to coagulate into one thing, aggregate into something so I started Juxtapose Magazine. You know, I went up to San Francisco and met with the people at uh, Thrasher and told them how I wanted it laid out. And they said, well, they'd be glad to do this magazine, you know. So I told them, you know, uh, <clears throat> uh, I want this as an extension of Zap. You know, I want it uh, pretty shocking, you know. And I said, I want it, unlike the other art magazines, it'll bore you to death. It just have a little picture and a bunch of copy. I want big pictures of the artwork and I want a picture of the artist so he, he can have a chance to promote himself. And I want very, very conservative layout and wild art. I don't want wild layout. You can't see the art, see. I told him I want everything uh, adjusted type, no flush left. You know, I want it to really look clean but go w really wild on the art. So they started out a quarterly with 23,000 issues. It just sold like crazy. Just right in the black, right? And then they decided, well, let's go bi-monthly. <clears throat> it's held up, so just they kept hiking up the print order. Yeah. And then after a couple of years, they went monthly. Say. And then as time went by, it outsold Art Forum. Say. Now, Thrasher had a remarkable distribution setup because they get Thrasher all over the United States and Europe, say, in Japan. So they use that setup, saying so it did real well. Now, <clears throat> but it had to find that audience still, right? Yeah, it had to resonate yeah. with that audience. Well, it, it not only found that audience, it created an audience. Right. Now, another thing, if you make a thousand magazines and you distribute them, you're going to get 600 magazines back to go to recycling. See? You only, four, only 400 magazines went in people's hands. See? That's, what you, that's a fact. That's the way magazines are. You just live with that fact when you're in the magazine. Well, these distributors were realizing that their return on these magazines was like 20%. They never seen anything like it in their life. It's blowing their minds. And these were really st strong syndicate people. I don't want to go into any terms about them, but you didn't mm -hmm. cross you didn't cross the distributors. They they ran it. They ran. They ran right. the United States. Right. In a big way. <clears throat> All of a sudden, they're seeing this old shitty magazine, you know, all of a sudden, almost no returns, like 20% returns. And so just got bigger and bigger. And then it outsold uh, Art in America. Did that surprise you? Did It well, seemed like it was started as a provocation. Well, there, a there, were, there were some problems, too. There, it was, this isn't all gravy or some problems, and I'll, I'll tell you. Then it sold, outsold art news, and that it become the largest selling art magazine in the world. Now, here's the problem, and I presume this to be the problem because I saw this in Underground Comics. <clears throat> the bigger your audience and the more artists in it, the triter it gets, the more watered down it gets. It's no longer this little tight band of rebels that's saying, fuck you. It's, uh, well, but we want my aunt to see this, and we want to sell a bunch of this stuff, and we want to make toys of this, you know. And that's not like me. I'm a sensitive, caring artist, you know, and I don't want to hurt anybody, and I can't use that kind of language. And so it, it did that. But still, compared to the other magazines, it's still the wildest one out there, the wildest art magazine. So... Uh, it, it started off maybe as an expression of, of West Coast art, of the Absolutely. art, of your art as well, yes, right? Yes. How important was it to you that it change and adapt with the well, times as well? The magazine was not made for me. It, it was made for me to find this audience to an area, but it was not about me. It was about helping a lot of other artists I hope were out there that had the same feelings. See? And a, a lot that of were... a, a lot of artists come along. A number of artists come along that are millionaires now. That are millionaires now because they have stuff that's analogous to this, like this. It's kind of cute and sensitive, and 
you know, innocent and uh, girly and, you know, and then, uh, but I, I expected this, you know, and as long as I have an avenue to express myself and my friends and other artists have that avenue, that's what's important. You have a really interesting, um, I don't know, I find that you have amazing balance in your life, it seems, for all the psychedelic experiment, for all the, the craziness that manifests itself in the paintings that you make. Um, you also have a, a sense about you of, of, of understanding that you need to reach an audience, that you uh, understanding that if you make a magazine that it has to have a good distribution, that sort of a thing. Where, where does that balance come from? Or do you agree with that, first of all? Like you're disciplined, you're very disciplined. <laughs> well, you know, you know, it really comes down to I don't have a tail to wag. You know, I could I could pin all this virtue on there. You know that uh, I was the guiding light. It, it's it's all bullshit. And, and I have a lot of detractors that say that uh, I'm I'm trying to be the next uh, Andrew Breton, lead the surrealist. I'm not. I'm not. I don't. Uh, these people can do whatever they want. I'm not. I, the magazine exists. I got my free hand. I'm just trying to make a living doing oil paintings. You know. Um, I got a lot of criticism, and I still get a lot of criticism. A lot of young artists that would not be here if it were not for that, for, for juxtapose, say, well, Robert Weasel does, doesn't speak for me. He doesn't speak for me. Well, like, I'm not responsible for ever speaking for him. You know, I'm not trying to be the, the, the guiding guru to this thing. You know, I just, uh, there's got to be someone to try to open the doors in the art world here so we kind of expand it. You know, I, I have nothing against abstract expressionism. In fact, if abstract expressionism started getting run down by other people, we'd start putting abstract expressionism in juxtapose, you know. We're, we're kind of defenders, you know, and, and and there's a lot of artists that really don't like me that if they got in trouble, I'd have to defend them, you know. It's just not that I'm so so virtuous. It's just that I, uh, I, I see this as subjective and not objective, you know. It's just the, the, the art world functions in a small little bowl, a small little yard like your backyard, the art world. And then out beyond that is a gigantic forest of of imagination capability that nobody wants to go diving into the forest because it, it, uh, this isn't what the rest of the group does and we'd get lost out there and I couldn't get a gallery show and there's, you know it's just, because it is subjective the door is so enormous and the possibility is so large and people just will not step out there if one the problem we had starting juxtapose was <clears throat> First, everyone did skulls, and then everybody did tiki's, and now everybody's doing big, big-eyed children. I try to break them of that, and I just make enemies. I say you can't have a whole art movement of tiki's, right? You know, and you're one state away from Arizona, where the Hopi Indians have kachina dolls. Nobody's fucking doing kachina dolls, <laughs> right? Right. Everybody doing fucking tiki's two thousand miles away in the ocean. See. <clears throat> So I just, uh, I don't know. I, uh, I do best if I stay home and don't bother people, see? Now, Juxtapose started developing, after, after about five years, Juxtapose started developing a personality of its own. And my relevance got uh, very unimportant, you know, because the thing had legs of its own and it followed you, young people getting them help. And now and I, I wasn't resentful about that. You know, the thing, I, I can still get work in there and it exists. It makes a lot of people happy, helped a lot of people, you know. So. Um, you talked very early on about um, what attracted you to the, the, the group of miscreants in, in Albuquerque was an esprit de corps. Do you think that that is still a valid kind of sentiment for um, what motivates you today is is – is kind of finding that esprit de corps in the underground, coalescing, you know, finding that group to coalesce and, and to represent well, and to defend? I have a hard time finding that in young people today. They're complacent. Mm -hmm. They got their thing walking around looking at their thing, you yeah, know. Yeah. And what are they looking at? They're looking at a thing about someone said something about themselves. 
Right. You know, there, you, you got that little phone, and you can you can find galaxies in there. You can find locations of galaxies and the, the statistics on the, the you know the center of the galaxy. You can find all the the entire human knowledge exists in that little fucking thing. And they're walking around, won't know who said something about them. You know. So is the problem that they don't? <coughs> it's, it's not that kind of thought isn't coming out of their minds. It's just it's, not coming out of them. Yeah. You know, it's just a, a rare situation. I don't have an iPhone because I'd be on the son of a bitch all day looking at facts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Getting your mind blown. Yeah, get well, my, like those punks uh, used to get their mind blown by your art in the punk clubs, right? Yeah. So. Uh, so what function? Well, here's a here's a very simple, succinct question. What uh, function does art fulfill nowadays? In that sense. Well, art fills a service to each individual individual differently right see to the communist it's propaganda see to the capitalist it's advertising see it's just it, to, to someone with abstract thinking it's his whole forest has never been uh, explored you know to, to most art students it well uh, i want to be a famous artist and i'll do something that makes everyone happy see I, i've taught art otis so i know what it's like with students, that was enormously disappointing because I've got a class of 18 and I realize I'm talking to three and I'm in therapy with uh, 16 of them. <laughs> so I realized, uh, I realized well, I, you know, I'm wasting a lot of these young people's time. You know, I'm, I'm telling them remarkable techniques that took me years to learn and it's just, uh, well, it's not relative to their world. And it's not that uh, they're wrong. It's that I should stay away from them. You know, I get emotionally involved with them and try to help them and realize, well, I'm just trying to piss up a rope here. <laughs> Wonderful expression, by the way. I don't think I've ever heard that. Piss up a rope. I, I'm just, uh, as you're speaking, as we're talking about nowadays um, and, and our current situation, I'm just thinking about all your early work, um, those eight-page Bibles that influence you, all that, how staid that must seem nowadays, <laughs> you know, how almost, you know, what what you considered, you know, at the very edge of pornography and decency and, and over that edge is now considered uh almost blasé in an age when no no because young people have you got an iphone get your iphone up and look eight page bibles it'll blow your mind yeah yeah in the 20s they all the animators in hollywood in the 20s made a movie called ever ready hard on buried treasure a pornographic cartoon in the 20s you should look that up that'll blow your mind i'm sorry what was the name of it again ever ready hard on buried treasure I see what pornographic they did there. cartoon <laughs> that'll blow time. your mind. They passed it around to all the animation studios in Hollywood, and each set of animators did a little bit on it secretly. That's actually an amazing story. It's on your it? iPhone. Look up Ever Ready Hard On. Ever Ready Hard On. Buried Treasure. Buried Ever Ready Treasure. There it is. <laughs> There's a couple That's of innuendos in there. Huh? Yeah. There's the, an innuendo. See, people, people think, and I don't mean to be personal with you, but people think the world's going to come to their fucking door. No, the great things in life you have to hunt up. Right. You have to have a, an investigative personality because all the great stuff's out there. You got to go find it. The shit ain't coming to your door. You know, the shit that's coming to your door is the stuff they want money and they're trying to pull you into something. Do you still have an investigative personality? Absolutely. You... Absolutely. How does that manifest itself? Well, you know, I think, I think having a curiosity uh, is innate to vertebrates because of sex. I think the libido is continually searching, continually searching, you know. And I, it's impossible to really understand sex because sex is designed where you'll never understand it. If you understood it, no, nobody would fornicate. Yeah. You know, when you, it's, it's actually a filthy thing. You know, getting on top of someone talking to, get, to take their pants off and then you uh, in, insert your urinary tract into theirs and grunt a couple of times and then that's it. You know, it's a very filthy, horrible thing. But your your mind's developed into this romantic, incredible thing. That brings – the other question you didn't ask me is about the problem with feminist, and I had an enormous problem with feminist. Of, of course, yeah, because your work was very <laughs> And racy. I was getting death threats, and they were on me, that Guns and Roses what was album their, What was their main criticism? They were debasing women. <clears throat> well, yeah, I was debasing women, you know, and then I had to be stopped. And it, it always, it, even in the underground comics, there's a lot of women did underground comics. 
And there were some cool women that realized, you know, that uh, men will be men, stay out of their way. But there was other women that realized men have to be stopped. Men have to be turned around. We have to control men, you know. Well, you know, uh, you're not gonna you're not gonna do that, you know. Uh, it, 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 it's it's like a pig trying to get mushrooms out of the mud or something, you know. It's, you're not gonna stop that, you know. That's there wouldn't be people if it weren't for dirty minds. You just wouldn't do it. How did you argue that though? Well, I explained it this way. Here's the way I explained it to him. My mother supported me as a child, and she got a fraction of what the male workers got. She spent her whole life trying to take care of me, and I saw her just be suppressed all the time. She was a wonderful intellectual woman with a college education, you know, and women have been treated horribly. But you have to understand that the entire concept of beauty is based on the female form. It starts with, in the libido, the female form. You go back into the very earliest art. It's little figurines of naked women with big titties, you know. And those, you know, 35,000 years ago, that was the equivalent to a Playboy magazine. You know, people, people say, oh, that's just a fertility item. Well, yeah, like a fucking Playboy magazine is a fertility item. Yeah. But the thing is, I worship women, and women are beautiful. And if if I have to be considered a bad person because I like to render uh, the, the female form, then I'm afraid I'll just have to be a bad person. Have the time? <laughs> have have the times <laughs> caught up? Is that, is well, that argument slowly I, ebbing with regards to your work? It, well, it was really, really bad in the '80s. It was uh, fanatical in the '80s. Uh, there was a, a, a woman went into a bookstore in Minneapolis and set herself on fire because they had underground comics. You know, it was just uh, I was getting death threats from women. You know, I mean, then it kind of petered out for a while. It's uh, kind of leveled off. It's not, as, it, but it was crazy back then. You know, you said you're working on two books now. Yeah. What yeah. What are they What are they containing? <clears throat> Well, I've got another big book that's an overview of everything I've ever done through Fantagraphics. It'll oh, be about fantastic. 400 pages or something. When is that it's coming about out? About five or 600 pieces of work in it. It should come out the end of next year. Okay. <clears throat> and Excellent. then two uh, professors at LSU are putting together a, a, a big, thick treatise on me and my history and influence in the arts. So, uh, Does that feel weird? Or does that feel great? Well, it— <clears throat> It, it one of them is a brilliant uh, professor from Germany. This writing it, he's checked art all over the world. There's nothing you could tell him. And then the other professor knows American lowbrow culture. So you got two of them working together. To just I, I couldn't be more honored. I know. So I mean, is it? I don't, I don't think the word is arrived. But maybe, but maybe that goes in <clears throat> well, that direction. I'll, I'll, I'll never really be arrived. Let, let me tell you something that happened. And this, if this gets out on the air, some people will immediately understand this. In 1992, at Mocha downtown, they had a new director named Paul Schimmel. And Paul Schimmel wanted to start his tenure off with a, just an unbelievably firecracker show with all the artists he thought didn't get recognition in Los Angeles, all the young f- fire breathers. So they had Mike Kelly and Jim Shaw and, and uh, a whole bunch of artists. And they they told Paul Shum, well, if you want this thing to be really firecracker, you, you need to get Robert Williams. So, so he come over and looked at my work and he said, well, you're, you're, in, you're in this show, The 16 Artists, you know. And this turned out to be one of the most important art shows in America and American history. It had the, the night of the opening went to one o'clock in the morning with eleven thousand people in the police and helicopters. It, it the attendance record was just there's nothing to come close to it. But all the newspapers all over the United States gave it really bad reviews. And the Nadar, the worst person of all, was me. And it was because of the, the violence and sexual content of what I did. The feminists just couldn't stand me. They picketed the show. 
Now, <clears throat> they still have this, that show is still very prominent and talked about, and you can find it on the internet or whatnot. But of all the papers, of 150 papers that reviewed it, they all were negative except for the Washington Post, who said it's the first art show they'd ever seen. It was like walking through a Zap comic. See? Now, the, the irony of the show, of all the critics, the top critics that could be found that wrote about how bad this show was, there's something that was not noticed about this show. And that was the majority of the artists, the majority of the artwork in the show was cartoon related. First time in history you had a major art show and you could walk around and you realize everything in here is primarily cartoon related. You know, no one saw that. No one saw this cultural change in 92. That from here on out, art is going to be uh, taking on a, a much more... Uh, uh, how would I phrase it? A, a, a much more flexible characteristic in a direction toward realism. <clears throat> now, let me tell you something about cartoons. There is no other form of graphics that's ever been done by man that has a bigger vocabulary than a fucking cartoon. Hey. You can say, if you can think it, you can say it with a cartoon. See? So you're, you, it's a wide open frontier there. <clears throat> now... <clears throat> If you the, the art world, ninety percent of the art world sells art based on decoration. This shit's going to hang up on the wall and you know integrate with modern architecture and stuff. They, they the uh, conceptualists tried to break that, but they never did. Conceptualists realized art's thought, and but they they never broke this. Now, if you got a nice living room, a modern home, you got a couple of books laying out there. Uh, coffee table books or literature you know you've got uh, a war piece or moby dick or tale of two cities classics you know real famous classics that anyone could uh, take verse out of <clears throat> well you can't open those books up and put them on the wall and show moby dick being gutted have whales being gutted and you know blubber being boiled off and stuff like that or tale of two cities where people getting their heads chopped off you can't do that because literature has the strength that art doesn't have I think art should be just as fucking valid as literature. I think people are so sensitive and whiny and caring that they just will not dare to. Now, if you buy one of my paintings, you put it on a wall, that's a living room destroyer. And you also curl up like a pork skin with one of my paintings up. It's just, you know, it's not presentable. My my paintings represent a chapel unto themselves to be presented in. You know, you could... I've, I've had people come up by my say they want to buy my painting. I say, man, this ain't for you. This is rough, man. You sure? Sure, you, you should think about this, you know. <clears throat> but uh, you know, I, I think art should be expanded mentally, and the way to do it, the language to do it, is through the, the simple cartoon. You know, um, uh, Darmier run Philip, uh, the king of France, out of office, and uh, um, Thomas Nass run uh, uh, Boss Tweed out of office. You know, they're, right. they're the right. most powerful forms of art in the world's cartoons. Yeah. You know, but it's just treated. It's just treated like some little silly thing. You know. Well, now not anymore. Thanks. <laughs> well, to you. you look at your movies. Everything sure. is based on superheroes and comic books now. Right, right. They, they, they make them, money. Call them, they, they call bring them, them gra graphic novels. Could know? anyone ever make a movie out of your paintings? No, no. Probably for a good reason. <laughs> you guys dilly-dallying with it is probably as close as it's going to get. You know? Sounds good. <laughs> Robert Williams, thank you so much. Okay. I really appreciate it. Little little tune to all right, Robert Williams, thank you very much. Be sure to check out his episode of The Ripple Effect on Red Bull TV. Um, you can check us out at theredbulletin.com, where you can find all these podcasts. Of course, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Acast as well. Special shout-out to the first name in podcasting, our engineer first name, James. Our producer has been T. Rizza from the shores of Nueva Jersey. And with a special uh, assist this week, uh, associate producer, Unique Monique. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>